For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and welcome to the latest readout from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter. Today, we start with a big bag of gas. Nope, not me asking you yet again to visit the website, subscribe, and support our work. I'm talking about a blimp. Evidently, hydrogen is going to save us from CO2 in yet another way, at least according to the normally somewhat conservative Ambrose Evans Pritchard in The Telegraph. He says, quote, It may not be long before we can start eating air-flown vegetables from Peru or blueberries from Kenya without feeling pangs of guilt, end quote. Frankly, I think he shops in a different store than me. But that's not the point. The point is that in his decarbonized posh future, quote, fresh food may reach us in cargo Hindenburgs without the unconscionable CO2 footprint of jet freight, end quote. And in case Hindenburg conjures up images in your mind of, I don't know, a giant transportation disaster, he insists that blimps are way better than they used to be. Whereas we insist that the carbon footprint of blueberries, even exotic ones, is actually very small. But if we really do decarbonize the economy, you're going to be hard-pressed to afford even local rutabagas, never mind delicacies from Peru. Evans Pritchard is right that blimps are way better than they used to be. Did you know they used to contain the hydrogen in sewn-together cow guts? Did you even want to know that? Of course, today it's different. Now they use high-tech, uh petroleum-based synthetics, and they use them to contain non-flammable helium. And what's more, a modern blimp can go 130 kilometers an hour and carry 10 tons of freight or 90 people. But so can a truck or a bus, right? Never mind a ship, and they don't get blown off course. So, put aside Evans Pritchard's sort of Buck Rogers vision of glistening airships in a globe-spanning jet stream loop powered by cutting-edge British technology. If we really face an existential planetary crisis because of excessive energy consumption, we're not going to be able to fix it while continuing to breakfast elegantly on fruit flown in fresh from Africa. And if we don't face such a crisis, we can still drive to the supermarket to pick up some broccoli that came in a truck, and even before that, a plane. In the newsletter, we also note that the media seem to have changed their story on those twin Gulf hurricanes. In the New York Times, David Leonhardt now says, well, duh, quote, the warming of the planet doesn't seem to have increased the frequency of hurricanes, end quote. Yes, as we told you. So are you saying there is no crisis? Oh no, heaven forfend, there must be a crisis. Quote, but it has increased their severity, scientists say. Wow. And to think just a decade or so ago, during the long hiatus in hurricanes making American landfall, the scientists who say were confidently proclaiming that global warming was reducing the severity of hurricanes due to, uh, what was it, increased wind shear. That's right. See, once again, the trick to the settled science seems to be you notice what just happened, declare that it's a trend, and then predict it retroactively which might sound like cheating, but if it is, the Times isn't very good at cheating because they even got that bit wrong. Long-term data doesn't show an increase in the severity or the number of hurricanes. Can it be that climate is complex? Well, it seems that way. The newsletter also discusses new findings about the speed of rotation of the Earth's core, which has implications for the magnetic field that keeps out cosmic rays. And, speaking of cosmic rays, another study saying that a nearby supernova, that's as astronomers define nearby, which is like how geologists define recent, this nearby supernova might have caused the Devonian Carboniferous mass extinction some 359 million years ago by flooding Earth with cosmic rays. 
And we also know the theory that a minor change in the Earth's orbit may have caused the semi-famous Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, about 10 million years after the dinosaurs died out, during which the planet warmed very suddenly and life flourished? Yes, indeed. So, there's more to it than CO2? Well, no. Scientific American says these, quote, subtle shifts in Earth's orbit around the sun, end quote, released vast amounts of CO2 and up went the temperature. So yes, it's all CO2 all the time. So why did the temperature fall again after the paleocene eocene thermal maximum instead of causing a disastrous runaway greenhouse effect? Uh, 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 never mind. Because John Cook has a new video out insisting that the 97% scientific consensus on global warming being a man-made crisis is real, and in that video, he ignores all the criticisms of that claim, including our own, and instead beats the stuffing out of a straw man and says deniers are part of a conspiracy. Which is a strange way to debate if truth is your goal. If therapy is your goal, though, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation says climate grief is a major health issue. And of course, it's your fault, not just for emitting CO2, but for not being sensitive enough to people who can't cope because they think millions of human beings are already dying from global warming and the rest of us will soon follow. In our view, climate grief is the fault of people working overtime to scare the heck out of youth about a non-existent crisis, especially those who target children under 15, who really ought to be sheltered from the uglier aspects of public policy, including adults' unfounded neuroses. And say that's our opinion. On the other hand, the New York Times thinks those children don't hear enough about climate change in schools. Their complaint being that only about two-thirds of American states actually mandate global warming indoctrination, and that under half the people teaching unrelated subjects like French or math manage to obsess about it in the classroom. Now, speaking of the crisis not being real, we also present evidence that despite constant predictions of Antarctic climate disaster, which yes, does happen in classrooms, temperatures there are actually falling. And from our collaboration with CO2 Science, we have a piece saying that reports of past rapid warming in the Antarctic Peninsula may have been badly exaggerated. Unless, of course, you're talking about the warming in the medieval and Roman warm periods there, which strongly suggests these were not minor regional phenomena, as the CO2 hysterics would have you believe. And furthermore, that a warmer Antarctic, if it does happen, does not spell extinction and doom. And we have one more piece of good news for you. It turns out that soy latte doesn't save the planet after all. It's actually more ecologically conscious to use the stuff that does come from cow guts, which also, I can't help adding, tastes a lot better. So, for the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, suggesting you relax with a tall, cool glass of real milk.